Hello and welcome to the Vinyl Sideways Podcast, diving deep into a discography one side at a time. I'm Jerry and with me is Al. We're just a couple of dopes who like to listen to records and talk about them. We continue this time around with side B of Pink Floyd's eighth album, Dark si- The Dark Side of the Moon, um, an album that uh, initially you and I were discussing what are we going to say about Dark Side of the Moon that hasn't already been said, and who are we to say anything about it? Well, we're, like you said, just a couple of dopes who like to listen to records and talk about them. By the way, if you're listening to this at home uh, and you want to... Uh, Cue up the Wizard of Oz to the exact moment uh, to cue up our podcast so it all jives with the Wizard of Oz. Now is the time to to hit play on your machine there. Have you ever done that, Jerry? Have you ever listened to Dark Side of the Moon while watching the Wizard of Oz? Well, yes and no. Uh, I you first heard... You know what I'm talking about, right? Yeah, I certainly don't talk about it. Not, yeah. in, you know, not on the internet. <laughs> Lord, no. But what I will say is I'm, a, I'm familiar with the with the idea, with the concept. And I remember when that concept first became a thing, at least in Pink Floyd circles. And I first heard about it probably in the early to mid 80s. Oh, wow. Uh, I didn't realize it was that. uh... Yeah, it was certainly pre, it was pre-internet. But the idea was there. And uh, I remember some potheads or something. Oh, yeah, man, it fits perfectly, dude. And uh, it's amazing. You, it's, it's just incredible. And uh, the whole idea seemed very silly but plausible. And I filed it away in the silly but plausible part of my brain and never worried about it after that. Years later, with the advent of the Internet and uh, everybody... Uh, saying their piece, whether it was their piece or someone else's piece, and putting it out there on YouTube, it crossed my mind one day that, you know, I'll bet somebody has put Dark Side of the Moon onto uh, The Wizard of Oz and put it out there. So I went to YouTube, and lo and behold, it's there. So I listened but watched about 10 minutes of it and went, interesting, this is interesting. And then I... You know, skip forward 10 minutes here, 15 minutes there, just to hear what different parts of the album sounded like with what was playing on screen. And it was interesting, and um, I'm trying to remember what Nick Mason had to say about it. It was something along the lines of, uh, I think the movie example he used was his I think it was Lawrence of Arabia, something it's like gone that. Gone with the you, wind, he, he said. Or, or gone with the wind. Thank you, thank you. That's what it was, and and, and uh, it would probably work with Gone with the Wind. But no, I have not looked to see if anyone's done Dark Side of the Moon, married it with Gone with the Wind. So I have not actually, you know, queued up the record and waited till that Sunday evening whenever they play The Wizard of Oz uh, every year. Uh, do they still play Wizard of Oz every year? I really don't know. But all that being said, I've never actually mechanically set it up to see if it would work and to have the experience. But I have looked for it on YouTube. It's there, and it's uh, it's entertaining. You know, for like you know, like a handful of peanuts is entertaining. It's uh, it's kind of yeah. tasty and crunchy and. <laughs> 
think I'll go get a drink of water now. Yeah. <laughs> and that's really about as far as it goes. How like, about so yourself? I, I did. Yeah, I heard about it. Uh, I heard a, a MTV News, Kurt Loder reported on it. Oh, boy. <laughs> and uh, I, I, had not, I had not heard of Stop it before the then. <laughs> yeah, right, yeah. No offense to Kurt Loader, but Kurt Loader. Yeah, as, yeah. Kurt oh, Loader yeah. told me about it, and so I. And that's where I heard the Nick Mason quote, where he's like, uh, "No, the whole thing was done to the Gone with the Wind." So he, yeah. <laughs> his his tongue in cheek kind of way of saying that you're Which being is very very Nick Mason. Yeah, you're all being ridiculous. Um, but I tried it out because uh, I was you know a teenager with nothing better to do and so I, I i kind of like you i watched it and uh i actually queued it up though and to a, a videotape of the movie that we had and it was yeah it was interesting there were little sections where i was like oh that was that was an interesting coincidence i understood it to be just a series of coincidental uh shifts in the, the movie and the the album sort of happened to coincide um, that was my impression with my limited viewing yeah interesting for for what it was but i mean it's not like i i can't imagine anyone seriously thinking oh they they <laughs> they had the movie queued up and they were mixing it to match the the film it's obviously that's ridiculous but it is it is an interesting little curiosity for you know 10 or 15 minutes and then by then you're like i'll just i'd rather listen to the album it, or uh, or watch the movie, as, not both at the same time. One of my thoughts at the time when I first started hearing about this uh, curious idea was, yeah, it obviously, you know, thinking it was a bunch of rubbish, was uh, imagining these these guys at Apple, um, at uh, at Apple Records, going. Okay, well, we need another eight bars because that's when they step on the yellow brick road. <laughs> you know, that sort of thing. Okay, we'll play a little bit longer. And, uh, you know, just, you know, and Roger being really, really militant about it to get it exactly right. You know, that, to me, that was the, the comedic absurd takeaway like, oh, yeah, they, 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 they did this. They did this specifically with Wizard of Oz in mind, and boy, aren't they way ahead of you know, this, the rest of the world, to have this incredible idea and uh, and to carry it forward without ever mentioning the Wizard of Oz. They were leaving it to the rest of humanity to figure it out. Boy, yeah. these guys are geniuses. We'll, we'll never mention it, but somebody somewhere will queue up the record at the right moment of the Wizard of Oz and you know find out what we've done here. <laughs> Yeah, and and, and, then, <laughs> and then you know the the secret the the key will be unlocked, and you know the the, the secret message and the Declaration of Independence will become apparent, and uh, then you know it will be this a utopia after that, or the New World Order, however stupidly whatever stupid direction you want to take the idea, and uh, not to, I think the whole concept is really very silly and hilarious and. The takeaway with all is said and done is just the idea of stoners, not to rag on stoners, but... But that's who's responsible here. Let's, let's, let's be honest. Yeah, <laughs> yeah if, if we're going to be completely honest about it. And, you know, God bless them for, you know, being creative enough to and uh, adventurous enough to, to try, try it out and to and to actually get something out of it i think that's great but this this the, the whole scene I, I could write a saturday night live sketch where you have some stoners 
figuring this out and then just being totally blown away and excited and almost evangelical to all their friends to get them to check it out. The the (laughs) funny... To become prophets, after all. A a funny thing was when when I discovered, when I had heard about this, and this was probably 96, 97, somewhere around there. We had just got the internet at our house. That was sort of where we got our first dial-up connection going. And uh, I remember going online and, like, digging around, and there was a website devoted to not just The Wizard of Oz and Dark Side of the Moon, but also other albums by other artists you know that you could play with other oh movies God. there was a whole I had no idea yeah it's like <laughs> yo you could put on uh Siamese dream with Fantasia you could put on uh you know Led Zeppelin 4 with I don't know what else but like you there were some they had tried out different combinations of albums and movies and it was I don't know it kind of like you said, stoners with uh, some extra time on their hands, having a good time, and it yeah. doesn't hurt anybody. But it's also it's it's fairly ridiculous, um, <laughs> and very entertaining. In that and respect. entertaining. Uh, but let's uh, let's continue on with uh, our discussion of Dark Side of the Moon. Uh, side B. The uh, side B opens up with uh, Dorothy entering uh, the land of Oz. The movie shifts into color, <laughs> and we hear the opening. Uh, uh, sounds of the song Money. Now, Money, for me, this was the song that I knew before I bought the album, um, before I heard the whole thing. Money was, for me, I, I thought Money was like the signature Pink Floyd single. And I think in a way it is, along with probably Brick in the Wall and Comfortably Well, it numb. was released as a single, certainly. Money! Yeah, and it was the it was the album seller. It was the it was the the charting single from the album. So this is what I was familiar with going in, and um, I, I you know re- reading up on uh, there's a there's a Reddit group for for Pink Floyd fans. If you're ever curious to dig around on Reddit, it's kind of it, it's a place to go on the internet, I guess. But um, there's a, there's a Pink Floyd group, and and some kid was posting on on there about how they always felt listening to the album that the shift from Great Gig in the Sky to Money seemed out of place, especially with how well constructed the song segues are and the rest of the album. They felt that was an awkward one, and someone replied back to them saying that's because money is really the start of side B of the album. You're, you're listening to us the second half of the album. Exactly. Um, you know, this kid is obviously not listening to it on, on a vinyl record. Maybe they are, but really they're listening what they were talking about is either listening to it streaming or listening to it on the CD from great gig in the sky to money. That is, that is somewhat of a jarring shift. Um, but reflecting back, the guy said, you, you, know, you listen to it on an album, side A ends, you get up, you go turn the record over, you put the needle back down, and there is a natural pause between those two tracks. So anyway, that was, uh, thinking about money, I was thinking back to, to that sort of interaction that I remember reading, thinking about how listening patterns have changed, listening um, behaviors have changed 
in the years and decades since the album came out. Um, you probably do have a lot of people who have never listened to it as two separate sides, but rather as one long piece of music. Yeah, Money, when it came out with Dark Side of the Moon, obviously, uh, we mentioned it was a single, and it was, and pretty successful, too. Uh, it, like Time, uh, had its share of being the Pink Floyd song that you would hear on the radio. And it was, or one of several that got a really a ton of radio play. And I felt about money at the time. I'm better about it now. But at the time, it was also one of those like time where I just thought it was overplayed. And, you know, I would hear the cash register and I'd go, yeah, I've heard this. And I'd move on. Yeah. That in itself, to be fair to the song, uh, Roger Waters getting cynical as hell, uh, good socialist that he is, and I mean that with all affection, uh, you know, grousing about uh, being a capitalist rock star, and, uh, or, you know, gee, I'm, I'm dirtying myself with money, and, uh, and the money is dirtying the world, and uh, this is uh, something to be... Uh, this is something that needs to be said. All Roger Waters' economical ideas aside, which I have great respect for when you get down to it, uh, it's a great song, and it's it's great musically. I, I love how biting the lyrics are. Uh, I like that uh, Gilmore is basically growling or not quite shouting, but he's definitely this is this is low octave David Gilmore uh, spitting out these lyrics or just not quite shouting them, but you know he's it's almost like I can imagine uh, uh, pink from the wall um, in his fascist dictator form, uh, you know shouting this at at the masses. And uh, and the mass is going wild, uh, even though <laughs> this would follow in the flesh in the in the pink show, right? <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. Although this is not exactly this is well before the wall, and uh, the ideas that uh, this was came out before the wall was gestated or anything like that. But the, this how David sings him, uh, he's he's channeling Waters very well. I thought. And uh, I, I, it was really not too much of a stretch at all to imagine if Roger Waters had the range singing this. I don't know if he, when you saw Waters live, did he include this cut in his concert or do you remember? Uh, yeah, he did. Um, okay, cool. cool. Uh, he, I don't think he sang it though. Um, he had a he had a substantial band with him, and he had right. got Snowy White and Doyle Bramall. He had, he had people with him who could sing um, some of these tracks. I, I've heard I've heard Roger's original demo of this song that he does sing on, and he I mean, it it does have a different flavor with with Rogers. Roger has a little bit of a higher register, a little bit more of a nasal register, um, sure, and than David does, and um, it's it's not quite as um, I think you're right. David gives a little bit of a snarl, uh, a little bit of a, a gruff snarl, where Roger comes across a little bit more 
it's a little bit whinier um, in in that demo, and it it doesn't have the same kick. I think I, right choice was made to have David sing on the track. Uh, these are he definitely gives it a kick. Certainly. He he does, and and you know lyrically, this is this is territory that Rogers played around in a little bit before. I think it was uh, was it San Tropez where he's singing a little bit about wealth and fame. And I think there was a sure. cut. There's a cut or two on Adam Hart Mother kind of discussing these kinds of things. But um, funny that this is the track that that sort of, I don't know if it defines the album, but it is definitely the album's calling card uh, just because of how successful of a single it was. At the time of its uh, writing it and recording it and releasing it, this was not uh, this, these lyrics didn't really ring true for the band. Uh, they were successful, sure. They were professional musicians making a comfortable living, I would imagine, um, by this point in their careers. But um, they were starting to make a profit they, at this point. They were they were in the in the black for sure. The the monumental success of this album. I think it's forty five million copies sold. I think to this point. Um, and of course, that wasn't all in the the initial release, but on the initial release of the album, it blew up almost immediately. Yeah, it um, went to number one in the U.S., which is like the the Mount Olympus of the uh, of well, that that's everyone wants to make it in America, and uh, they did. And it, it catapulted the members of the band into the, into this higher tax bracket. To be honest, um, that's true. So. I don't know if it was. I'd be curious to know if it was if it was uh, as Roger was writing the, this particular song. What what that thought was? Did he expect for this to happen? Did he see it in others um, around him? Other you know contemporaries. You know this is this would be the time of Led Zeppelin and their private jet, right? So. Sure. Is, is this what he's expecting will become of him? Is it, I'm sure there's that cynical side of it, but also somewhat of a predictive uh, song. I don't know. I I, I I couldn't tell you, but it, it's it, I always found it interesting that the song about the trappings of fame and wealth became the song that catapulted them into the trappings of fame and wealth. I, that's speaking of coincidences. There you go. There's one for you. Yeah, and it's it's a it's a it's a nice little bit of well, it's certainly serendipity for the band. It's like, hey, you know, we can we can start, you know, being less concerned about the very next tour, and you know, we can get off the uh, you get off the treadmill a little bit, uh, and, and it gives them more freedom, I guess. So they had an artistic freedom, go, you know, going forwards, but. Uh, it gives them a little bit of breathing space to, uh, to, you know, you know it, it's not this hand-to-mouth existence of hotel rooms and concerts and recording and so on and trying to find a life uh, in the midst of all that. It gave them a little bit more space to be human, I guess, to not be so absolutely 100% devoted to getting the product out it, it certainly gave them room for that but it also it was a sort of a i'm trying to find the prep, proper word for this it was like a sociological serendipity in that 
as you uh, as you explained, uh, they were you know the song is very biting and sarcastic, uh, but it this is the moment or it was part of that I guess weeks or months long moment where the band was realizing that they were be they were a success. I mean, of course, they were starting to get larger audiences and playing larger venues during this period, uh, and certainly more so going forwards. But uh, they had critical recognition with metal, uh, certainly uh, acclaim with echoes, and so they were they were bringing in more money. Uh, to offset the costs of this light show and you know the then the whole uh, Pink Floyd machine that was at this point becoming the machine that they would welcome people to in the following album. Uh, but in that respect, it gives a uh, for the listener uh, or anyone who was paying attention to Pink Floyd, who obviously would be listeners at the time, going, yeah, they're really, really down on money, but boy, they're rich rock stars. So, you know, there's that little bit of irony there uh, where you go, isn't it ironic that they're going, that they're singing about that? But then the irony is ironed out, I guess you could say, by the fact that it's quality material that they're, they're putting out. And uh, so... The irony of uh, rich and pampered rock stars biting, singing bitingly about making money and making a lot of money and becoming part of the jet set or needing a Learjet, it kind of goes by the wayside because it's a, you know, the bass hook is good and you know, there's a saxophone solo, which is great. And, and uh, just... There's lots of little hooks in the song that make it interesting to listen to, and you you got to appreciate it how it works out that way. That yeah. uh, you know, I mean, let's say that money wasn't on the album, and we've discussed this before about different songs on the album. What if it wasn't on the album? Is the album still good? Yes, it's still good. It's even great, but it's not the powerhouse that it is without this cut and this even though this is not my favorite cut on the album not to sell it short uh, without this song on the album the album isn't near the the powerhouse that it is it's integral as they all are yeah and you know you talking about taking the song off the album i think even if even if money was a song that showed up later, like if if the band had great success and then this appears on "Wish You Were Here" or "Momentary Lapse of Reason" or something like, it doesn't ring the same without you know being on on this album at this point in the band's career. They're they're not they are singing about some sort of a fictionalized. They're they're not. They're not singing about how much money they have. They're not bragging or gloating. If this if this song came out later on, it would come across that way. But um, where it is now, they're they're sort of cynically, sort of thumbing their nose at the idea of uh, becoming a super capitalist. But also, they're also embracing it uh, to a degree. They're um, they're wearing their heart on their sleeve a little bit in in the lyrics of the trappings of fame and wealth 
are enticing. They're it's it's part of that human condition, part of the theme of the album. Well, I think it's a great comment on the state of the industry, not as a whole or anything like that, but this is the period of time in the early 70s uh, where rock acts, uh, well, Beatles and Stones notwithstanding, but those are uh, just a couple of bands, but there was a growing, I guess you could say, stable of rock and roll acts that were being successful uh, and being incredibly successful. You mentioned Led Zeppelin earlier and, you know, and them traveling by jets, but there was rock and roll touring acts, arena touring acts were becoming a big entertainment draw because the equipment had matured to the point where you could do that and still sound good. And it was found to be a, to be a very profitable exercise to go out and do these tours and to sell merchandise and uh, to get your name out to buy the record, whereas just getting your name out and the songs out so people would buy the record was the point of the concert. And uh, you might make some money, but you know the, the, the idea was to move the product, whereas at that stage in the early into mid-70s and beyond for that matter, uh, the concert experience, uh, the rock, being in a rock and roll band was all about being a big star and they were all rich and raking in tons of money and flying in jets. Not that they all were, of course, because they weren't, but that was the popular conception of the rich and famous rock star. And here is Pink Floyd taking that step. They're now <laughs> they're now yeah, flying it, in jets and they're they're now maybe not when they specifically when they were recording money, but you know, the writing was on the wall that they were certainly on a you know, a a, a ascending trajectory, uh, as far as their uh popularity was concerned. And uh money wasn't becoming as much of a concern for day to day. In other words, they, Roger Waters recognized that we're making money and uh, that's good. I like it. And look at all these other bands that are making money and asking the question, maybe not so much as asking the question, but making statements that suggest that there is a question of, is this a good thing? Well, I'm Roger Waters, and I'm going to say, it, you know, it, it's the root of evil today, you know, that yeah. sort of thing. But and. Uh, there's a serendipity to that as far as the legend of Pink Floyd that uh, right at the point to where uh, they became worldwide stars and was making money hand over fist, well, this is also the point they released this biting, sarcastic uh, screed against money uh, altogether. Yeah, the, the song about the evils of money worked to make them a lot of money. Uh, yeah, right. <laughs> and you know the the we talked about concert film earlier for for on the run the the concert film that plays um, you know behind the band on the big on the big Mister screen when when money plays I'm pretty sure it's money. No, I'm sorry, it's later on. It's uh, I think us and them are brain damage. One of those tracks. But there is there is a shot of uh, copies of Dark Side of the Moon 
on the on the assembly line on the conveyor belt in the factory being pushed you know packaged and pushed out as product and i think money is a reflection uh, as a song of that idea of like this is this is our product you know we're we're tongue in cheek here but we know what we're talking about yeah and uh, you got to give credit to them for at least on the visual side of of you know material for mr screen that they inserted uh, their, one of their actual albums as part of the uh, the visual presentation, um, uh, and an analog to that would be, even though it's an entirely different subject and expression and attitude, but um, in the Stanley Kubrick film A Clockwork Orange, uh, the lead character uh, Alex DeLarge, uh, who is a horrible human being, at one point is in a record store. And in the record store, uh, front and center, although not zoomed in on, but front and center, if you see it, you recognize it, is the soundtrack album to 2001 A Space Odyssey. Yeah. So it's that, so that's that little bit of um, not exactly breaking the fourth wall, but... Uh, Some self-awareness. Yeah, there's a self-awareness going on that uh, is... Um, legitimate and doesn't come across as uh, derivative or or taking the piss out of yourself just for the sake of taking the you know taking the piss out of yourself it's a it's a practical or forthright outspoken expression of this is the dirty work you know it's a dirty business but somebody's got to do it and uh, and it's not going to change your opinions but it's not going to change our behavior either. Well, we talked maybe about our behavior is being changed, and so be it. We, we talked about how this album, uh, in in how it presents its themes, it it does a lot of um, it asks a lot of heavy questions, and it doesn't always give you an answer. Um, Very or, true. Or if it does give you an answer it's an answer that's open to a lot of different interpretation. And a lot of great art does that. Um, you mentioned Kubrick just now. Watch a Kubrick movie and you know show it to 10 people and you'll get 10 different opinions about what that movie had to say. Um, right. Because you know, he, he was very good at asking questions and not providing the clear-cut answers. Um, and there's a right way to do that where, where you are stimulated and there's a wrong way to do that where you're confused and frustrated. And I think, you know, like Kubrick, Pink Floyd on this album, they're, they're doing it the right way. They're presenting questions. Cause I, I read, I, you know, I read the lyrics to this song. I pay attention to money as, as a, as a piece of, of, of art that asks the question is, is a lot of money is wealth. Is that a, is it a good thing or a bad thing um, for the individual? It doesn't give you the answer. I don't. I, it's very. It, it has a sort of dual, um, competing, at odds uh, theme to it, um, because clearly it's sung from the point of view of like someone who is is wishing to acquire wealth, um, and it turns them sour, and. Uh, then it becomes uh, uh, about greed and i still feel like it's sung from a point of view even once it gets to that point like you're like you're still not sure well what's the alternative should you not seek 
success and wealth because that doesn't seem to jive with what this song is doing to the person who wrote it. It's, it's bringing them fame and wealth. So yeah, it's 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 one that you can sit back and think about and reflect on um, and not quite come up with a satisfactory answer because you're always going to be changing your mind about what the song is is trying to say. Um, musically, uh, I did want it to, to point this out. Uh, it's it's uh, a song that changes time signature, um, which right. is, is abnormal for such a successful rock song single to do. Um, it, it starts off in that 7-4 time, and then it shifts into 4-4 four, four time. Um, and the story, as far as I'm aware, is um, when asked to write the guitar solos for the track, uh, Gilmore couldn't handle writing and performing a guitar solo in 7-4 time. It was too much counting in his head. So, right. so they shifted the song into a more standard 4-4 four, four, uh, time signature for the solos um, just to give David a break so he could actually perform something up to up to snuff um guitar solos on this track are blistering um i love how the production shifts towards the end to that sort of dry um almost it's a breakdown almost uh Mm -hmm. towards the end i've heard lots of live versions this is this is a, a song that you cannot escape a Pink Floyd show without getting money. Money is going to be played at some point. Promises. Very true. Promises made, promises kept. And um, on later tours, they would have extended breakdowns of this of this track. This 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 track is, I think, about what six or seven minutes on the album. How long is it on the album? Uh, six twenty-two. Yeah, so it's about six, it's about six minutes on the album. It it gets extended out to ten, sometimes twelve minutes when when done live because they do this this breakdown. Um, Guy Pratt on later tours had extended bass solos on on this out al- on this particular track. So they've monkeyed around with the form of this track throughout the years. Um, played around with it. It's a bluesy track, so you can get into um, some blues riffs and sort of improvise some blues sections fairly easily because of the nature of the song. Um, I always found it interesting uh, the collection of great dance songs, which is the sort of later released um, compilation album has an interesting track list to it uh, it has money on there something with the the story I think goes the the recording masters were either they were unavailable or they were not licensed to be used for a compilation like this so uh, this was after I think Roger had sort of was on the outs with the band so when it came time to prepare this release, this collection of great dance songs release, money was going to be on there. David Gilmore went into the studio and re-recorded the entire song on his own. So if I did not know that, if but you, okay. If you're a completist, if you're a Pink Floyd completist, and you want to get every you know every track, every recording, um, seek out the collection of great dance songs compilation, and there is a faithful but also different version of money completely done by David by himself. Well, I do know that uh, live, when I saw them live, that, uh, of course, they did play money because uh, it's a hit. Um, that it Money was, is a hit. <laughs> yeah, it, exactly. It's uh, that it was the 
longer extended uh, funky breakdown that happened later in the song as opposed to what's recorded on the album. It was the longer version, and uh, and you know, and it's it's a it's a it's a catchy baseline, and uh, the lyrics themselves, at least in a live in a live venue, became almost inconsequential. I'm sure people who know the song backwards and forwards would never think that. They're hearing the lyrics in their head, and obviously they're hearing the lyrics while they're being sung and they're following along. But uh, for me, even though I was very familiar with the song at the time, I was really appreciating more the live performance than Dave uh, uh, shouting out the or bellowing the lyrics or and calling them out or anything like that. It was really more of a, uh, I was appreciating really the more musicality of it in a live setting. Uh, and I don't have that impression when I listen to Dark Side of the Moon. I mean, I can appreciate the musicality too of it, to it, but uh, seeing it live, there was a lot more going on uh, in a live in that live show I saw uh, then what's going on even though there is a lot going on in the, in the recording uh, it was doubly so in a, in a live pre- presentation yeah I feel like when you're when you're a band with a a single successful song and and not to say that Pink Floyd had a single successful song but I, I would I would say money and brick in the wall and comfortably numb. Those three, maybe wish you were here, but those three especially are the staples. That if you're going to a Pink Floyd show or a David Gilmore or a Roger Waters show, you can expect to hear all three of those tracks um, right. played live. And so you get to a point, you know, you're you're David Gilmore, you're Roger Waters, you've played money thousands of times. For, for an audience, At certainly hundreds, but probably thousands of times. Um, you're gonna get to the point where you're, you're gonna start fussing about with it because you know it, it becomes a chore for you to play it the same way for the thousandth time. What what yeah, can people, what can you what can you do? try different things too? Yeah, and, and your your audience maybe it's the first time that someone's been to your show and they're expecting to hear money the way it is on the album, but you're not going to give them that because again you've played it a thousand times already the way it's been on the album you're going to do something different to it so um i always appreciate hearing those i always appreciate when when artists do that it it, sometimes it can go off the rails sometimes it's better to to stick to the tried and true or to not go so far with it um i think pink floyd and roger waters have done a good job throughout the years of giving the the live version a little something different a little something extra but also staying true to to the track itself to the point where you know the saxophone solo is still part of the live performance they're not cutting that out they're just sort of messing around just so that they can feel like they're playing something fresh each night instead of the same track they've been playing the same way for 50 years yeah and i'm sure that they would play it not radically different every night, but I'm sure, uh, as is normal in a live presentation of, of music that you've rehearsed and played a whole bunch, that someone or several people, whether it's just Guy Pratt, who's trying something different, or 
David Gilmore, who's taking a note, singing a note a little bit sharper than before. Uh, you know, as you referenced, they're trying something different, and those things just kind of happen uh, unscripted. They just, uh, it's just you know, in the moment, I guess you could say. And what comes of that are things that, you know, more often than not, uh, that don't work or they work well enough, but every now and then you get something that works really well. And it's like, ooh, I like that. Let's do that again. And let's, uh, and what comes from that is musicians and, you know, the performers trying different ways of expressing the same thing musically. And, uh, but, taking it into a slightly different direction just to keep it more interesting for them of and audiences like that or they don't like that and people reactions can be mixed but overall at least in my impression it's like well when I saw them do money it wasn't the exact same as on the record but I'm not really such a you know disciples who are no it has to be the way I heard it on my record player but more so that oh I like what they did there that's interesting that's nice good on them and uh, you know they're human beings they're artists and they I'm not gonna say they get bored bored going oh, I'm up here playing money again but as musical artists it's only natural to as the feeling takes you to take it in a different a slightly different direction or even in a more radical direction, if the feeling takes you. And uh, as long as you remain, you know, within the guidelines of the song itself uh, and follow it uh, forwards, uh, then, you know, it's perfectly fine. You don't want to upset the audience, obviously, but, um, and they never did. I mean, or let me put it this way. I never heard them live do something so radically different to where the audience was confused and certainly I never heard them live play something so exactly like it was on the record you know, may, you know maybe uh, a momentary lapse of reason the, the cuts from that album were played more note for note on the tour I saw them which makes sense because that was the tour that I saw them on yeah. you know, the momentary lapse of reason. Those tour. were those so, were fresher songs, and they were promoting that yeah, album and, too. And if fresher, and there was really no reason to go off and and uh, and not to say go off, go way off the reservation. There was really just had not been the opportunity, much less a reason, to make it a little bit funkier uh, or a little bit sharp or abiding or or, or to you know, make it a little bit more interesting because they were fresher. And, but, uh, you know, as you said, they, I'm sure they played money hundreds, if not thousands of times. And, uh, seeing them do this live was, uh, it was great. You know, good, good, good cut and, uh, an audience pleaser, an audience favorite, certainly. Well, um, Let's move. Let's move into the next track then. Uh, Us and them, which I believe I, I I think money was the only officially released single. But uh, if we're talking about tracks I hear on the radio, I do hear Us and Them quite frequently. Uh, it's it's achieved a radio status, at least in the in the in the later years here. 
It had a radio status in the 1970s, certainly not like money uh, or you know any any of the other uh, time that we're getting tons of radio play. But us and them was certainly a late evening cut that you would hear on album oriented, you know, uh, rock radio in the era. It was one that uh, would get radio play, but certainly not to the extreme as the other two cuts. And this is, I, it, it's, it's a tough one, but this is perhaps my favorite cut on the album. It is, uh, let me put it this way, when I do come across it on the radio or wherever, I'll stop and listen to it because it's, it's, I use this adjective too much. It's a beautiful song. It really is. Yeah, I'm looking now. It is. It was released as a single. Reached. Um, uh, reached some chart success. Not not a top ten track or anything, or even a top forty. But um, was released as a as a promotional single and and did you know receive airplay. Um, the thing that that always strikes me about us and them is I I think this is this is the one I was referencing earlier uh, when I, I mistakenly put this pointed trivia onto great gig in the sky this is the piece that was originally written for the zabriskie point uh soundtrack so this okay, piece of, yeah right that, that 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 that's correct you're yeah. absolutely right so I, that knowledge came back as as a piece of music this this has been hanging around on the shelf since 1969 68 um uh which is amazing to think about yeah to, to sit on this for four or five years uh and it's such a strong piece of music um but credit to the band either either they forgot about it or they just never felt that they had it fully fleshed out until this moment and and it's um it's a beautiful rick wright um musical composition um that is is given the extra over the edge by by rogers lyrics this is um this is one the, the the two tracks on this on this side us and them and and brain damage that I, I always I always lump those two together because they always have they both have that um, that build uh, that explosion uh, yeah the song does work itself up to a uh, a climax and it's it's David's voice is so listenable to it. Now, this is on the level of echoes as far as a David vocal uh, performance is concerned. Very listenable and very relaxing and comforting. And uh, the the thoughts that are expressed in it, uh, which on first listening, you know, like, like you, I guess, the lyrics... Uh, when I first heard them, really weren't that important. It was all just part of. I didn't. I didn't think about the lyrics and those other listenings. I was because it was getting radio play. Certainly, you would start to catch on to what the lyrics were saying, and you were at least for me. I was starting starting to put them into place and understand what was being said. And uh, it is a deep and heavy song, and uh, and. You know, it's it's Roger Waters making a very very strong statement uh, on 
life and people and of how we bear with what's in front of us and Rick Wright's instrumentation on it is you know it's it's, it's very eloquent and just a, a beautiful piece of music and I keep on going back to that I don't want to want to say beautiful over and over and over uh, but the lyrics are so strong. I mean, it, it, yeah, it's a it's a great song. And then when you start, to, at least for me, when I started to come to grips with what what Waters was trying to say, or I don't know how much he was trying to say, but what he ultimately says, you know, just heavy stuff. Listen, said, listen, son, said the man with the gun. There's room for you inside. You know, it's like that's. I mean, I probably was into my, I was probably in college by then when I started to ruminate heavily on the lyrics. Maybe not so much focus, but, you know, when the song would play, I'd be singing the lyrics with it, and they would start to, you know, it had become by then engaged in my head that uh, this guy was, you know, Roger Waters had some real heavy stuff to say, and he doesn't hold back. I mean, this guy, it's interesting going back over the albums that we've been discussing since we began this podcast to watch him develop as a songwriter is, uh, it's, it's an amazing journey his songwriting has taken. And, uh, you know, to use that baseball cliche again, he hits it out of the park, particularly on this song. Yeah, he's, um, you know he's he's got some songs that I, I almost said this is one this is his saddest uh, lyric for me, but I'm thinking about other tracks and no, there are definitely some some sadder songs to come uh, on the ne- on the next album even. But um, coming off of a track like Money that definitely has that tongue in cheek, cynical. It, it's an it's an upbeat tempo. It's a rocking song, which kind of betrays the the sort of heaviness of those lyrics it it almost makes it seem uh like a comedy piece at times uh depending on how on kind of what kind of mood you're in when you're listening to a song like money but us and them uh has some very bleak very sad imagery um if you're if you're putting the pieces together this is this is roger confronting some of those demons um with uh sort of the the pointlessness and the fruitless nature of, of war. Um, you know, the, the general sat and the lines on the map move from side to side forward. He cried from the rear and the front rank died. You know, it's, 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 he's talking about how uh, other men's problems are killing the uninvolved, you know, the, the, the rank and file. Um, We're kill- it's killing the ordinary men. Yeah, and and that's where some of that us and then us and them comes from. But really, that that last, the very last section, as a contrast to money, uh, where he's singing, "Out of the way, it's a busy day. I've got things on my mind, and for the want of the price of tea and a slice, the old man died." I mean, on the very next song after singing about how he wants to buy Lear Jets and new car caviar. Like, you, you, you hear that, and it, 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 you sit back for a little bit, and you, it, it, that's a lyric that hits you. It's almost on the level, for me, 
the lyrics for Time that we talked about in the last episode, the lyrics on on this particular track, coming where they do, especially in the sequence on the album, it really makes you, it's, it's again, it's, he's asking those questions of you to interpret these lyrics, and he's not going to give you the answer, and there is no single right answer, of course, it's it's art, it's open to interpretation. Um, for me personally, it kind of, it that's what, that's what strikes me about this particular song, is he's just come off of singing about his, his capitalist, greedy ambitions, and this is a song that covers the same territory, but in a completely different way and with a completely different effect on the listener, at least for me. Yeah, it, and there's I agree, and there's a lot to be said for that. It's I really like the juxtaposition of the cynical world of money or the cynicism about the world of money and how it is so deeply ingrained into our capitalist societies and uh, it's not a criticism, it's just how it is. Uh, and then to take a step to the side, and but to really talk about not exactly the same thing, but to talk about a symptom of that, which is war and death without actually talking specifically about war except making references to generals and lines on the map uh you know he's obviously referencing war and the uh the the powers that be who send the ordinary men off to their doom and and that is the world that has been that is the world certainly in the early 1970s, uh, that's, I mean, Vietnam was still going on, and that was a big deal in terms of uh, where people's heads were at, the war in Vietnam, and the pop culture in the area, I'm sure a lot of people, some will remember and others certainly would have heard of, there was a lot of anti-war sentiment, certainly by 1973 and 74, uh, and Roger Waters has long been, you know, a a, a waver, a, a flag waver of you know, no war, stop the death. Uh, but he expresses that there is that dark uh, part of the world as it turns around. And this is what happens. You know, the ordinary men get sent off and uh, other people stay in the back and the ordinary men are cut down. And, uh, you know, what are we fighting about? And, well, this is, you can't deny this is what the fighting's all about. And all of that against this almost womb-like comfort of what Rick Wright is, uh, and and the rest of the other musicians too, uh, but Rick Wright's musicality here, it's a very melancholy, but not scathing, not, not you know, this isn't, it, it's not taking down and attacking the state of the world, but it's reflecting on it and in a very melancholy way. And it's that reflection in of itself is 
to use that word again, it's sublime. You know, yeah. One, one, another word from my bag of words, <laughs> my limited bag of words. You've got it's, the best uh, words, Jerry. I have the best words. But, um, well, I, I should have. I paid for them. <laughs> but uh, what I'm trying to say is the very, very sublime presentation uh, that hits home. Uh, you, you can't help but imagine it hitting home to an English listening uh, or not English listening, but to a British audience that, you know, barely 25 years before was in the midst of a world war and what followed was decades of um, relative deprivation, really, you know, the rationing and all that type of stuff and austerity, only to start coming out of it in a cultural sense really by the early to mid-60s. That's when they were starting to, you know, it was 20 years of austerity following the Second World War. So the, and people like Roger Waters growing up without family members, you know, these were, you know, they lost a lot in that war. England, I'm saying Britain, UK, the the, the, the Great Britain. Uh, and that was, couldn't help but be, on the minds of all these kids who grew up into the young adults such as the band members of Pink Floyd uh, as part of their, that was what they grew up with. I mean, that was their life and, and, and their parents and older siblings, whatever, would talk about it and it was on television and in the movies and you know war was still only a few decades away uh you know not that far in the past when uh roger waters was writing this song and it's just a sublime statement on on you know it's it can be sometimes a tough old world and uh, and people tend to fight, and uh, even ordinary people. Yeah. And there, and there will always be people who will be maybe not so much as getting an advantage out of it, but who aren't bearing the brunt that the ordinary man does. But more than anything, it's it's just a it's it's just I'm not gonna say a cry in the wilderness per se, but it is a cry against the uh the state of the world and uh it's it's a it's it's relevant and it still holds up it's it's a beautiful song and very very deep and and, you know again i'm i'm not so much comparing it to money but i'm giving it it's 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 place in the in the sequence of the album coming off of that track it's it's two different this song us and them and money it's it's two different um reflections or takes on greed and corruption um and sort of what the effects are one is from the perspective of the uh the acquirer of wealth of, of the greedy person and the other is from the perspective of, I guess it's from an, from an outsider perspective, but reflecting on the effects of that greed on other people, um, whether it's a greed for you know a, a quest for wealth, a quest for territory, a quest for power, 
an authority, whatever it is, like it, it's he's he's making those observations in two, it's it's a similar observation two different ways. Um, yes, yeah, another essay on the human condition, really. Yeah, and and you, you you know, call the album a concept album. There's there's different ways of defining what a concept album is. Um, you know, the wall is a concept album that sort of tells a story. Uh, Dark Side of the Moon is a concept album that the songs are connected by by a theme. Um, I don't think there's a single theme on the album, but I think these two songs are definitely connected. Um, I think the, the great question that's being asked in this song is like, who is us and who is them? Um, you know, who, what, who, who are the parties that are in conflict? Is it the, the people in power versus the, the little guy? Is it the, the generals and the, versus the soldiers? Is it the rich and the poor? I think it's all of those things. Um, I, I wouldn't limit it to just one sort of take, uh, but you know the, the the song itself is is a strong statement on sort of the the results of of unbridled quest for for something um, at the expense of others. So uh, certainly at the expense of others, by yeah. all means. And I don't know that that was a, that was part part of that I, that part of it. I don't think was explored necessarily in in the other tracks. I think this is where it becomes less about yourself and more of Roger looking at the rest of the world or, or society or other people. Um, where a lot of the tracks in the album have been more inward focused, this one's a more outward focused piece. Yeah, it's uh, very much a, uh, as I said just a moment ago, it's an essay on the human condition, but it is an essay, uh, it's almost describing a tragedy without going so far as to saying it's tragic, uh, but it does describe tragic things that go on or tragic examples that, uh, tragic situations that are true and real, certainly real to a Roger Waters in the early to mid-1970s, and probably still to this day, uh, but the tragedy of, of what is life in this world, uh, this is the point that we are at, uh, and this is what I see, putting myself in Roger Waters' head, and, and without going so far as to actually say, you know, there are generals who are sending us off to war and it's BS or you know, nothing so caustic or anything like that. But really just a reflection on uh, it's it, it is the most wonderful sad song I've ever heard. Well, and that's that's why it wasn't uh, it it was rejected for Zabriskie Point. It was the note right. was, it's too sad. It sounds like church music. <laughs> Which, as I've said in earlier podcast, Rick Wright is so good at. Yeah, he's at uh, putting on his uh, church uh, church organ hat and uh, and taking it to a good place. Well, um, let's uh, let let's go on into the next track, which is um, another instrumental. There's there's several instrumental pieces on Dark Side of the Moon. Um, any color you like. It, color spelled in the English O U R, 
right uh, spelling. This uh, this definitely feels to me um, it's it's a necessary piece of music uh, to get from us and them to brain damage. I think I think you need something in between those two pieces. In, in earlier in earlier albums, this would be the the valley, maybe the the in, the uh, instrumental that would uh, and this is an instrumental, but this would be the valley between the high points, you know, based on earlier albums. Yeah, the difference this time is it's it's a strong instrumental though. It's uh, in my opinion very anyway. musical. Yeah, very musical. It is. I mean, it is a musical piece. It is. Um, it's. It it feels to me like a link more than a piece of music that they really wanted to get out there and like hey we've we've got this great song it's called any color you like even though it is a strong instrumental piece it feels in the grand scheme of the album feels inconsequential to to the album as a whole it doesn't quite have the what speak to me and on the run and the great gig in the sky doesn't quite live up to those tracks um in terms of like how important it feels to the album again it's important for me in the sense of sequencing the album giving some space between us and them and brain damage yeah any color you like is is a track where I'm trying to think of another example that follows it, but and there are others on other albums. But it's a track that uh, agreed. Uh, it's a linking track, certainly. But I think if you asked most casual fans of, of Pink Floyd, uh, if you mentioned any color you like, they might say they remember the title, but they really couldn't describe uh, the cut or even you know, what album it was on. Yeah. Um, it, and I'm just guessing. It's, it is certainly one of their uh, less well-known cuts, which is saying something given the, given the album that it's on. But it definitely is a vital link between uh, where they're going, which will be brain damage uh, from us and them. But it's a nice little ramp up towards brain damage uh, because us and them is so, uh, even though the themes itself are are just so sad, uh, any color you like is uplifting. It uh, it's, it has a soothing sense to it, and then it starts to up its game a little bit and become a little bit more, I guess, approachable. Yeah, I guess you could say. And, and what I mean to say is, is you get. David's the return of David Gilmore's guitar, uh, but it becomes a little bit more peppy. There's a little more, a little bit more of a pop sensibility to it as the cut goes on, uh, but it's it's never, you know, descends into or it never keeps on going and becomes a full fledged track unto itself, or even as an intro to. Uh, the following track, Brain Damage, although that is essentially what it does. It never really gives you that impression that it's going to become this... Uh, uh, I'm not going to... Uh, well, you know there's a song that's going to be following it, and, but if you're just hearing it, it's like Pink Floyd's song. There's a building sort of building towards 
a climax theme going to it, but it really just kind of keeps in its lane in a very good way and uh, provides the necessary link between us and them to brain damage. And it's this is a it's it's one of those it's it this is another late night track you would hear on album oriented rock stations in the 1970s yeah um you know previous albums uh, have had those those instrumental uh tracks or or tracks that seem sort of in the grand scheme inconsequential i'm digging i'm digging through and looking at some of the previous albums you know track listings and um you know on on an earlier album if, if dark side of the moon was maybe a 1967 or 68 pink floyd album um, I, I, I don't think you would have gotten any color you like. I think you would have gotten something like several small species or you would have gotten um, some kind of saucer full of secrets-esque space. Well, certainly on the, uh, the recording itself, they, are ma- they make good use of, the, uh, of stereo separation uh, for the effect that that gives. Yeah. And, and in that respect, there is definitely a... I, I'm doing air quotes again, a psychedelic aspect to it uh, on that level. But um, it's the, not it's not quite guitar- as space freak out as as. Yeah, exactly. It's not, this, it's not this strange jazz rock um, you know, experimentation, jazz odyssey or anything like that. It's, uh, you know, David Gilmore, you know, trading licks with himself, basically. And um, while the band just kind of chugs along in the background. But they do have effects going on. Like I said, you know, they're making full use of the stereo sweep and all that. But they br- they've overall, broken their synthesizers out again too. They they yeah, got some good synth effects. Yeah, but overall, there's you know Rick with with you know he's not in church organ mode, but he's in uh, ambient mode here, and and really carrying the whole thing along under and in accompaniment with David's guitar. And it does pick up. I mean, it gets, you know, there's, you know, Nick starts playing drums on it. And, uh, but it's really just a, um, I guess I'm selling it short by saying just a, but it really is just kind of a filler cut. But it's a really good one. Yeah. I I can't imagine the album without it. Um, Yeah. Once again, I agree. Yeah. and, And part of that is because I've, heard it so many times it would seem out of place if it if it wasn't there um and and not to belabor the point but it it is uh it is a necessary piece of music to separate the previous track and the next track Um, it's an uplifting cut though it it is especially with us and them uh, uh, lyrically and and also musically being somewhat of a of a minor key downer depressing imagery kind of a track uh, and not to say that brain damage is <laughs> going to to reverse course much, um, but it does, it is it is a light it is a light piece of music to to give give this side of the album some balance. Yeah, and it's a it's a reset after mo- the hard cynicism of money and the the dark um, I guess depression of us and them as comforting as the music is they you know it's a it's kind of a you know uh, we've said this a bunch it's kind of a sad statement about the world 
there's a lot of sadness and melancholy to us and them. And then any color you like, you know, basically is saying, not saying specifically, you know, not in words, but it gives you an aura of, okay, just relax and we'll move forwards. Just relax and we're going to keep on going down this road. And then it it becomes, it starts to pick up. It becomes more, uh, I guess, peppy, I guess. That's a really bad word to use for it. But it does pick up. It's a little up funky. It's a little funky. A little, little funky, certainly. That's a better word. And uh, you have also some of the best words. <laughs> and uh, But it becomes a little bit funky and something for someone to, you know, rock their head back and forth with and to appreciate more than anything David's guitar because the, the the guitar is definitely uh, you know great little great little phrases that he's throwing back and forth and between the the sound separation and him playing back and forth uh, playing his guitar against himself it's a great little uh, funky piece of music uh, to take us into the next track uh, called Brain Damage and uh, so it's integral. It's, uh, it's it's it is the necessary pause or reset that we need before we uh, get into brain damage. So, Al, unless there's anything else you'd like to say about any color you like, uh, shall we get into brain damage? We shall get into brain damage, and I will just say this up front: the lunatics are on the grass. Yes, they are, and what a great way to start a song. This is not my this is not my favorite song title, as far as Pink Floyd songs go. It's uh, to me, it's a little bit harsh, and maybe that's a societal thing. When Brain Damage was, you know, back in the seventies, it was there was kind of a a stigma about it. Uh, no matter how it may have occurred or anything like that, but brain damage was seen as mentally deficient and uh, and not as smart or handicapped. And, uh, and not to say that it's not seen that way now, but I think nowadays there's probably a more empathetic understanding that these things happen and they happen... A lot of it, when it happens, is out of people's control. And but it, oh, go ahead. I, I was just gonna say it, it was a, a subject that was it was danced around um, a lot. You know, I'm, I'm thinking back to like early Bowie records, like uh, "Man Who Sold the World." It's it's you know, mental illness um, is is a part of that album, but it's it's not explicit and overt. Um, right and not, they certainly not to, and, danced around it. Yeah, and I, and I don't think I, I don't want to say that brain damage is a song that um, is insensitive to that. It's not um, in my view, um, but it is a very direct kind of perspective. Certainly, and the song itself really isn't so much about brain damage per se. You know, it is. It, it illustrates. It's illustrative of what 
Roger Waters is trying to say in the album, but the song isn't about specifically brain damage or even specifically about Sid Barrett, although I'm sure their experience with Sid Barrett and the tragedy of all that uh, you know, obviously was looming large and would become uh, fully expressed in the following album. Uh, but, you know, it's this, the, what struck me when I first heard this song, and maybe in t- on, on repeated hearings as I got older, but just the stark v- visual of a lunatic on the grass. You're starting off your song with that statement. The lunatic is on the grass, and the, the thoughts that that creates, you know, the listener is allowed to get their own or have their own interpretation of what is a lunatic on the grass what does that mean to someone and uh you know what is roger referencing here and it really the statement is asking the audience or telling the audience to you know make your own decision as to what i'm singing about here at least in terms of the lunatic itself but uh the song itself is uh, it's really more about conformity than anything. Uh, you know, you got to keep the loonies on the path, and yeah, and and there's it's there's are, are the lunatics to, artists? Are they intellectuals? Or, is, is he is not necessarily literally people yeah, who are not, in an asylum type situation yeah right exactly it's not it's not keith moon out on the green mm-hmm. or anything like that it's uh really is you know the lunatic could be that part of society that uh that is incorrigible and sees the sign that says stay off the grass the lunatic gets on the grass and uh you know it is that person a lunatic because you know being on the grass is a nice place to be. It's nice and green and soft, and it's a nice English day, if it's not raining. But, uh, you know, there's tons of ways to interpret each little line across this album, which, thankfully, I, I don't think we're going to do every single line. Uh, maybe we can avoid that. But uh, what I am saying is, is a, the, this the idea of the lunatic on the grass is a great way to well it's a memorable line and it gets it gets the audience's attention and it holds it because you know it's you know the lunatic you know, Roger keeps on talking about the lunatic in the head and in the hall and uh, you know what is he saying here you're allowed to interpret to what he's saying uh, to interpret what he's saying into whatever works for you. And it's, uh, so what it is saying is up to the listener as a standard, it's subjective, but just at its bare literal bones, it's a really, really cool piece of poetry. And uh, you got to appreciate it. I had, um, so just my sort of history with with this song in particular um within within a year of of getting dark side of the moon and and listening to it um and becoming a, a fan of of the band uh 
on my, I guess my Christmas list that year was the the Pulse video, uh, right. the Pulse concert video from the Division Bell tour, and I remember watching that video, and that was, you know, I, I still was not, uh, I had not heard much beyond um, Dark Side and Wish You Were Here, and I think I had heard The Wall by that point. So getting this live album, the draw for me was the performance of Dark Side of the Moon in its entirety. Um, I, I remember watching that video, and the we were talking earlier about the imagery for for songs that would play on the Mister Screen. And so for this this track, when when the lines are being sung, the lunatic is on the grass, and and those lunatics are in my hall. The imagery that's being projected on Mister Screen is is shots of various politicians and heads of state and presidents and prime ministers and they're all shaking hands and they're all at these summits and then they they invariably would show the clips of you know them falling down or having their embarrassing moments or whatever and I think that's something that Roger has continued to do on on later tours where when he plays Brain Damage the visual element is. Uh, the politicians he would show clips of um and they are the lunatics so you wouldn't i don't think you would get that necessarily just from listening to the song and and paying attention to the lyrics but once you see that that visual element at least for me i've always made that connection to the song that the lunatics are the people in power that are being that were referenced maybe in the in in uh, us and them the generals moving the lines on the map, they're the lunatics, or um, it's a battle of words, haven't you heard? They're the lunatics. That's that's how, that's how the connections I've always made. And so I know that there's the Sid Barrett element. I know that there's the human condition element. I know madness is part of the, the, the theme of the album, but I've always made that connection um, with this song, that, the luna, that this is a more of a, a social commentary track than it is any song about uh, individual mental health or whatever. When I first heard this album and or this song on the album, and in in following rec- uh, listenings at least through the seventies until I got older. In any case, uh, I always thought the lunatic on the grass was kind of a a metaphorical expression of uh, just crazy thoughts, really um, that. Yeah, you know, the 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 lunatic is that little voice in your head that uh, you know maybe I'll just steal this candy bar and no one will see it see me and uh, everything will be great. Uh, just as one example, there's all sorts of different little you know little crazy things you think about that boy if I did that you know that could be terrible or that could be great. No, that would be crazy. I'm not going to do that. But it's I see it as a, a at the time, as and this is long before I ever became aware of the Sid Barrett story or anything like that, was that it was that little bit of madness that is potentially in everyone, uh, and maybe it's in everyone. Who knows? Until but they keep it well hidden, uh, and uh, it probably never comes out except when it does. But it's always there in the back of you. You know, it's the, the the beast that lives in every person, and maybe not so much as to do beastly things, but it's that nonconformity that you know you 
you know, you keep after what you're supposed to keep after and you try and live a good life and, you know, do the right thing. And there's a little bit of nonconformist there that's telling you to do something different. And I've always seen it as is, well, you might go down that path. You could go down that path, you in the third person sense. And, uh, and as soon as you go down that path, then you're, you're, you've gone to a different universe or a different world. You know, I'll see you on the dark side of the moon. And it's, I always, at the time, I say always at the time, but what I mean to say is, is I always took the lunatic as being a metaphorical expression of the demons that are inside of us and that we keep under control for reasons great and small and that they can come out unless you keep control of it but sometimes you can't always keep control of it and when you lose that control well you've gone to the dark side of the moon how relevant that is in the grand scheme of things i have no idea and if i ever had a chance to uh, discuss that with roger waters I imagine his response would be either, no, you got it entirely wrong, or he would say, it is what you think you want it to be. And um, when all is said and done, it really doesn't matter except for, to me, on how I take it in. And that's how I've always seen the lunatic. As I got older, of course, I learned the Sid Barrett story, and but even then, uh there was I, I have never gotten past the idea of the lunatic on the grass as being a metaphorical expression for uh, nonconformity and remaining sane in the face of, of insanity. And uh, all that aside, it's a really, it's almost creepy in terms of how it's sung. You know, it's kind of a, it's not whispered, obviously, but it's presented in a very low octave and uh, almost in a in a soothing way for you. Don't worry about it. It's there. You know, the lunatic is on the grass. Just ignore it and uh, things will be fine. And, uh, boy, that lunatic needs to get off the grass. You know, got to keep on the path. So don't you get on the grass like that loony. I think uh, and that's really that's really as deep as I've ever thought it out. And when you come, when I listen to this song more than anything uh, these days, you know, in my dotage, these days it's more of just how the, the thoughts and that it elicits inside of me, the emotions, really have nothing to do with the lyrics. You know, I mean, the lyrics are there as part of the song, but they're really kind of I'm not going to say meaningless to me. They're just not, and 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 not to deny deny how to, to deny how effective the lyrics are and how well they work in the song, but more than anything, I'm appreciating the the tones and the music as opposed to what's being expressed. I think um, there's a lot in the Pink Floyd catalog that somewhat. In, it, Again, I'm not the songwriter, so I don't know where these are coming from. But I feel like a lot more is made of Sid Barrett's impact, his lasting sort of ghost, so to speak, within the group's sort of psyche. 
um, fi- right. finding its way into songs. I mean, there are clear, clearly songs about him. Uh, Shine on you, crazy diamond. Uh, wish you were or just he- the theme. The theme of madness across this album. Yeah, and and, and you can't have a, an album about you know with a theme of madness and not make the connections to the former bandmate who who struggled with that. Um, I think a lot of songs, I think, I think it, it became really easy for people over the years to point at a song and say, oh, that's about Sid, as if they were, right. they're, every song that they ever wrote and recorded was about Sid. Um, right. I think this is an easy one to, to make that connection because of the, on, on the face, like what the lyrics read as. Um, I think the one the one line that would give credence to that theory would be the the last one. If the band you're in starts playing different tunes, I'll see you on the dark side of the moon. I would accept that as a as a as a direct reference to to, to Sid. But I since I, it happened, yeah, yeah since it's <laughs> as autobiographical probably as you can 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 get with a lyric. Um, but I think. I think that that's too easy to, to just say, oh, it's about Sid. I think you're right. I, right. Think, I think there's more to it. I think you can make that interpretation if you want, and I think you're right. Roger would tell you that you're not wrong. If that's what you believe it to be about, then that's what then that's what it's about for you. Um, but I think that there's – I think that's selling the song short. I think it's selling the songwriting short of, of Roger and, and, and the band in general, that everything is ever about Sid. Um, I think they can make grander statements. I think that they can make – broader uh, observations without it always coming down to one person or one experience. Um, certainly that experience that they share would give them a, a frame of reference or give them a, uh, what, what am I looking for here? Give, give them a way of sort of seeing the world um, differently maybe than, than other people who have not had those kinds of connections but sure. but uh, a song like brain damage especially but in general pink floyd music i i think there's a lot to it that um goes beyond just the sid connection and i think i think you're you you make some interesting points um about what about who or what the lunatic is um and I, the fact that there's three within just this discussion the last few minutes three plausible dissections of what this song means i think that speaks to just you were talking earlier about the rogers maturation as a songwriter and as a lyricist and just where this band is at this point in time why this album as a whole is so spectacularly successful and well regarded is that it it's got a lot of interpretations and they all make perfect sense none of none very few interpretations of this album would be seen as like, what are you talking about? It's not about right. that. It's not about goldfish. What are you talking about? Um, you can make you can make a lot of conclusions from what's presented here, and they're all valid. And uh, well, lyrics and themes aside, just musically, uh, the way the song the way the song presents the lyrics and builds upon itself by the time the song is coming to an end it has reached such a uh, orchestral without having an orchestra but it becomes very very powerful uh you know and, and if the cloud bursts and thunder in your ear etc cetera, etc cetera, 
and you shout and no one seems to hear. Uh, you know, very eloquent line there, uh, but musically what's going on is this thing is just building to an incredible, well, it's not opera, but it's operatic in that respect. It's uh, Yeah, you've got the girl, it, the girls make an appearance uh, right. with background yeah. vocals. It, it's there's a wall of sound, you know, thank you, Phil Spector, even though he wasn't part of this project, but there, there is the whole soundscape becomes filled. Every, you know, nook, crack and cranny is filled with some, something musical going on and it's all playing in concert, meaning it's all playing together and it's playing together. Well, there's, you know, at no point, you know, one could think that, but at no point does it go that way. You could think that, boy, they're really pulling out the stops here and they're going overboard. You know, this is kind of, you know, it's getting kind of, you know, really, really pretentious and ostentatious, except, you know, maybe it is, except if you just take it at face value as it's coming across your ears, it is a magnificent piece it's a magnificent production you know how the it's a great piece of magic to start so i guess low-key but in a disturb disturbingly low it's disturbing and it's low-key and then it starts to grow upon itself and become more orchestrated while it's the song is being presented and explained. And when it finally gets to the very end of it, it's just, uh, you know, and the crowd goes wild. I mean, this is one of the most satisfying endings to a song uh, that I can think of without thinking too hard about it. Uh, but it's a, you could have ended the album with this song, except they didn't. You yeah. know, there was more to come. It's, it, it, flirts with, um, it flirts with becoming a gospel song, almost. Yeah, um, sure. Yeah, exactly. There's definitely a, uh, a, uh, I guess a an anthemic quality to it, and, uh, and and in fact, you know, when I've seen, I've heard this in recordings from shows, and I certainly saw it when I saw them live. The audience is singing along. You know, when you're when you get to the very end of it, you know, certainly with uh, you know, end if the cloud bursts, thunder in your ear. The crowd is not just singing along; they're shouting it along with the band. Or at least that was my experience, and I really don't think it would be much different at other concerts either. You, you say it, it could have been the it could have ended the album, and I think you're right. But it doesn't. We have one more track to, uh, to that we discuss. Do. Uh, the album closer, Eclipse, which is uh, as we referenced earlier, that was the original name of of the not the album, but when it was a uh, a live performance piece, it was that was the name of the, the show was Eclipse. The so, project, yeah, the project was uh, the the title of the project became the title of the final track. Eclipse works as as an album closer for me. It 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 does a good job of. Summing up, I think it's a good it's a good poetic way of summing up what this whole experience has been about. Um, you're you're meant to to reflect on 
who you are and what you are. And again, it's not answering any questions as much as it is asking is like all of this is is what you are and all of this is different for everybody who hears it, um, which is a sign of great art, I think. Uh, a painting, a, a book, a, a, a film, a piece of music, if, if it makes you feel something, it works. And if it makes many people feel many different things, all the better. And I think this is a good, um, a good way of expressing that as an album closer, as a, uh, as a reflection on what they've been trying to say over the course of this album. Uh, it's a relatively short piece. It's only, uh, it's just a hair two over minutes. two minutes. Yeah, just a few seconds over. And, you know, kind of like On the Run, I'm sorry, uh, Speak to Me and Breathe, I feel like Brain Damage and Eclipse are, are kind of one and the same. They're, they're obviously different compositions, but they, they are, for me anyway, they, they feel like a single piece. They, they get performed together a lot um, in the live setting. Um, it's, it's a little bonus that you get when, you, when they play Brain Damage, they'll often play Eclipse to go along with it. Um, but it, it does a great job, I feel, of, of making you feel satisfied at the end of, of, the, of the listening experience. Even several dozen times having heard the album, I'm glad that this track is there uh, to, to put the final piece of punctuation on the listening experience. Yeah, it definitely punctuates. It's a very good word to use. Uh, it punctuates what is quite obviously a fantastic album. But what's really notable to me is, uh, once again, we're back into how really good and strong of a writer Roger Waters is. And he does it this way with a, I'm not going to say it's a trick, like he was, uh, you know, this is the way I'll get their interest. But he, the entire, the, the lyrics of Eclipse uh, are all... You know, they all land on the verb, and and they land on things that people can relate to, whether it's touching, seeing, tasting, feeling, loving, hating, distrusting, saving. I'm going through the list here. Giving, dealing, buying, stealing, creating, destroying, doing, saying, eating, meeting, spite, fight, all that is now and all that is gone and all that is to come, which people think about... I would think, well, I think about that regularly. That's kind of a daily thing. What is now, you know, what is not in my life, and, uh, you know, what, is, what does life have ahead for me, uh, which is all human condition stuff, and, you know, that's just very normal. But it's a really, really good, I hate using this word, but it's, it, it's a parlor trick, and uh, which is not to disparage what he's doing here but it's a very he engages the listener uh, effectively by bringing the audience into it it's not just touching seeing tasting feeling it's all that you touch you see you taste you feel and uh, so he's singing uh, well, or David's singing but the song is being sung to the audience the audience is being uh, being reminded or uh, the audience is being reminded that they are the ones 
doing having these experiences and that they're a part of it and uh, that itself is a brilliant piece of writing to and, and, and he makes it you know lyrical as well I mean it'd be very easy to just string off a or, or you know bring off a, a string of verbs and try and uh, work them into a song but um, and engage the audience that way. But Waters does it in a very eloquent way. Uh, he doesn't rhyme with every line, but he does find times to put in a rhyme. And it's uh, without going into really, really a deep discussion on how one lines and one songs might work in one song versus the next one. This one is just a uh, eclipse. The lyrics in Eclipse are just a great presentation of simple verse that engages the audience. You know, it, it brings them into the song itself and while doing that reminds them to all those things that are so deeply entwined with the human condition, you know, from our senses to our emotions to our actions uh, to our hopes and dreams, and maybe even to an extent our regrets as well. Yeah. And you have to, you know, it's a, I, I'm blown away. I mean, just by. Uh, I remember at the time, first listening to it, I mean, I was, I understood all that you touch, all that you see, et cetera. But after a few lines of this, I stopped hearing what he was singing. It was just enjoying the, you know, the, the, the tonality, the, the, you know, the, the, the lines, but not the meaning of the lines. It was only as I got older, like with other songs in this album, that I started to appreciate what actually was going on lyrically. And this one, of all the songs on the album, this is the one lyrically that does the most for me. This is the one that, that makes me go, Jesus Christ, what a <laughs> what a what a what a motherfucker of a song, Roger Waters. How did you do that? And uh, and uh, you know, may I shake your hand? You know that sort of thing. It's a uh, you know it's. And it's not even my favorite song on the album, but it's probably, to me, the most impressive set of lyrics uh, in the Pink Floyd catalog, at least front to back. It just, uh, it's, a, it's a complete package as far as uh, the artist engaging the audience and giving them something to think about, and that something to think about is something that they're all innately familiar with just because they've lived long enough to make it to the show. And, and he's using, deliberately, he's using the word you. He's speaking, to, or right. singing, he's singing to you, the listener. He's reminding you, you know, you talk about, he, he's, he's reminding you that this is not about just him or the members of the band or whatever he's he's singing about all of us and there's reflection to be done by the listener this is almost like a homework assignment at the end of the right. album like i've presented all of this to you 
and now, and, and maybe you were hearing it as me singing about myself, but really I'm singing about all of us. And it's, these it's kind words, of a group prayer almost. Yeah, and it these these words a, a prayer to it. These words apply to you as much as they apply to me. And I think that's again one of the reasons why this album is so well regarded and such a has such staying power is it does it does transcend just being a piece of rock music that you can play in your stereo right. and thrash around. Or just one of a number of progressive albums that came out by multiple bands in this period. It's, uh, you know, this song and others really on the album make it stand head and shoulders above the rest uh, if comparisons must be made. And I really like uh, uh, on the end, it, it, I, 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 I feel like he's, I feel like Roger is, is doing something very, uh, he's very clever and witty and, and I, I almost take it as a joke um, where he's, he's giving you this, this assignment where you have to reflect on all that you are and he's he's saying at the at the end everything that's now everything that's gone everything's to come everything is everything under the sun is in tune oh but wait the sun is eclipsed by the moon so you're like well what the fuck roger like (laughs) i thought we were all in tune but we're not because the sun is eclipsed by the moon. You're giving me something to think about here at the very end. And then the heart beats to, to take us out. So well, I, as, I, I as took that as a joke, as a little bit of a sly English humor, witty kind of thing to do at the end. I took it as more of a, and I see where you're coming from there. And I think that that's not illegitimate, not an <laughs> illegitimate take. Uh, but I saw it as, you know, this long list of, things that the audience can relate to and the audience being brought into the song itself uh this you know this prayer this uh man not mantra but a prayer and um you know and this is all that there is and this is all that you really need to this is all that you can all you need to understand because that's all there is to understand um but the sun is eclipsed by the moon so even as much as you can relate to and understand, there's still the moon. And as good of a punctuation, meaning there is an occlusion of light. There is an occlusion to everything that you understand. There, it, it's, it's not everything exactly as you might think it seems to be. As good as a punctuation as this song is to punctuate the end of side two or side b and the album itself i love the punctuation at the very end of the song where uh one of the recordings of various people that they ask questions to to use as little sound bits throughout the album is the line that is i think iconic there is no dark side of the moon really matter of fact it's all dark which is strikes me as very Roger Waters mm-hmm. and you know you have this great uplifting you know church service rah rah all this and all that and all we and it's all dark <laughs> <laughs> and uh, not to say that everything that he's relating to is dark in of itself but there is that matter of the moon things that could get in the way and there's a dark side to it. Yeah, it, it's like yeah. He, he's telling you, like, all of the answers to these questions are are in perfect harmony under in the light of the sun. 
However, right. where you happen to be, the sun is blocked out by the moon, so you're not going to see the answers that that are there for you. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's a it's like, a big uh, cosmic joke. Here's a, um, uh, a a technological analog to this. Um, I uh, many years ago I had uh, some degree of uh, employment dealing with satellite broadcasting. I was working for a station and we took a satellite, you know, we had an uplink to the network and all of that. And there were one or two times a year where the sun would cross directly directly in line with the satellite that our dish was pointed at. And when that would happen, we would lose signal. Sun fades. We, yeah, we, it, it's exactly what it was because mm-hmm. it just uh, would, uh, it would, you know, the shadow going across the, the, the sensor really made things not very uh, workable. You know, it was a technological uh, uh, issue, uh, which you deal with by having multiple satellite dishes or, you know, you deal with networks or you have alternative programming or whatever. But what I'm saying is, is it's in line with the whole idea of, of uh, things are one way in the sun until... But it's not, looking at it in the sun is not seeing it in all the light that there is. Different light can bring a di- bring a difference, and it's up to you to to understand what that is and to be able to identify and keep with all that you understand in a different light. Not to say that as an instruction but to say that as this is part of all that there is, all that there is is also what isn't. Um, and that has to be, that has its place as well. I don't think that was the absolute point of what Waters was getting to, but I think it's alluded to in the in the course of the song, just by the all except for the moon. Uh, I, I, I like to... I feel a connection between this and and all you need is love lyrics, where he's singing about how there's there's nothing you can know that isn't known, right, nothing, yeah. nothing you can see that isn't shown. There's nowhere you can be that isn't where you were meant to be. It's easy. It's like, oh, is it? Right. Thanks. I didn't. <laughs> I didn't realize it how easy it was. So yeah, a little, right. little bit of a British twist on a British humor twist on um, these big existential questions. Um, Jerry, I think, uh, does that wrap up our discussion on Dark Side of the Moon? We have managed to discuss the entirety of the Dark Side of the Moon. I was nervous about this when I was like, what, are, what, what do we have to say about this album that hasn't been said more eloquently than by, by other people? And I don't know that we've disproven that other people are more eloquent than you and I, but um, I, I truly enjoyed listening to this album again. Uh, I've heard it so many times that I was... I was sort of thinking, well, I mean, gosh, what 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 is there to say that hasn't already been said? But um, great art is open to many interpretations, and I, and I enjoy discussing it with you and, and hearing your thoughts on the album. Um, this is typically when we, when we go back and we, we choose a, a top track and a bottom track. Um, I, I'd like to do that again, but I want to put a little asterisk by saying that there is no real fair way of saying this is the best or this is the least best because 
as as a whole this this album feels to me like one continuous piece of music and by taking any one section above or or taking one section out it it changes the whole complexion of the songs around it but um i'll go ahead and say that my favorite track on the album is my favorite pink floyd track at least at this point in time is time the song time it it speaks to me not to use a pun from a different track but um the lyrics uh more than any other song that i can think of uh are really um they they are they are they are meaningful to me they catch my attention every single time musically it's it's a fantastic uh performance uh from the entire band i love david's solo um i love the explosion of the track out of the opening sound effects uh section so time is my favorite track on the album uh the one track that uh, doesn't uh really connect with me as much as the others uh is on the run uh i feel it's a little over long for what it for what it is it can you can maybe shave a minute and a half off of it and i and i would have a different opinion on it um, that's not to say that I dislike it, though. I think it's it's perfectly fine. It it serves a great uh, it serves a purpose. It has a great spot on the album to link, breathe into time, and um, I, I don't really have much negative to say about it other than it took me a long time to get around to it. Okay, well, for me, and under those conditions, as far as uh, songs and uh, them being this is a complete package as opposed to a collection of great dance songs, so to speak, uh, I'm going to say that my favorite cut, in, and I'll also say before I say that, that if we had recorded this podcast, if we record this podcast tomorrow, my answer might be different because it's sure. really kind of fluid yeah. uh, as to what my favorite is. Um, I really love Breathe, and I really like Us and Them for how they work within the album itself. But I think when all is said and done, um, I think I'm going to be kind of wishy-washy here and say my favorite part of the album is Brain Damage Eclipse, just because it's uh, the shift from one to the other is so eloquent. Uh, Eclipse is so powerful in how it ends. It It's a brilliant ending to a brilliant album. Uh, and because of how Brain Damage makes these metaphorical expressions that are left that are left so completely ambiguous to the uh, to the listener but eclipse because how it engages the listener and brings them into the song and has them think about what they are and what they mean and you know everything else that we just talked about uh, so I will say that, Brain Damage Eclipse is my top of the game, and Money is the the south end of things, as integral as it is to the album, hmm. and as good as it is to it. Uh, I remember at the time thinking that the whole 
uh, cash register money jingle thing was kind of derivative and even a little bit cheap. That was at the time when I first heard it. As I got older, I was able to appreciate uh, the gimmick, so to speak, that was going on there and and the idea of, of making it a kind of a, a rhythm track unto itself. I can appreciate it on that level. But um, as far as what uh, emotionally speaking as to my, my own sensibilities and all that, um, not that I'm like some great, you know, money is the best thing in the world, but picking on money is kind of like low-hanging fruit, um, at least in, in from my perspective. So it's my least favorite track on the album, which is not to say that I dislike it because I don't. I, I love every song on this album, including money. But Brain Damage Eclipse, uh, the way the album is taken to its final stretch and ending is uh, that's what does it for me. Yeah, pre- previous albums, we've had some pretty obvious highs and lows. This is one. I agree with you. You you asked the same question on a different day, and the answers probably change. Right. Yeah. <laughs> exactly so. Uh, well, uh, unless there is something else to say, I think I'm going to take us home. What do you think? Go for it. All right. Well, with that, the needle goes up, and we place the record back in its sleeve. Please look out for our next episode where we put on Pink Floyd's uh, next album. How do you follow up an instant classic? Well, it'll be Wish You Were Here. We would love to hear your feedback, so leave us a comment and rate the episode. Until next time, this is Jerry. And Al. On the Vinyl Sideways podcast, we will see you soon and shine on. <laughs>